Welcome to Think With Me, a podcast of the Christian Think Tank PH. I am Dan Hopinyalasa, the host of this show. I invite you on this journey to think with me as we explore scripture, examine context, and engage scholarship on some of the toughest, most confusing, and often misunderstood passages in the Bible. On this episode, we present a model of biblical interpretation, exactly how to use it, and then walk through how to use it with one of the most misunderstood passages in all of scripture, 1 Corinthians 8.1. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the third episode of Think With Me segment of uh, the Christian Think Tank podcast. Tonight, I'm joined once again with Kyle. And uh, tonight, we'll be going through uh, the principle, using it in interpreting a text. But uh, before that, before we go into that, bro, uh, how are you? I know you have been so busy this whole week and going (laughs) to be very busy for the whole month. I think it's CCF's um, Missions Month, and that's your division. And how are you? I, I saw you. I saw you. I mean, I, I watch it. I you preach, right? That's mm. Wednesday. How's the experience? Yeah, I heard well, a lot uh, of good um, yeah. feedbacks. Tired. It's just been busy. You know, we've been out every night this week. It's not just that. It's our. This is also our what we call mid-year prayer and fasting week, and we do a. Uh, sort of prayer service every night of the week and that's one of the things they asked me to do is one of the prayer service on healing for the nations so i talked about numbers chapter 14 um did a brief overview of the situation that these guys are going through and then a prayer of moses and the prayer of moses was it's often seen as a prayer for israel but uh there's a piece in there people miss and it's not just a prayer for Israel, it's a prayer for all nations. So, yeah, I got to talk about that. It's exciting. It's just been tiring because we're out every day, you know. It's strange to be out every day, back in the office every day, helping out every day. And, yeah, being with people and praying with people every day, which has been good. Tough. A lot of people are going mm-hmm. through tough stuff. But overall, I think good, tired is not. So being tired from something is not bad. I'm definitely not tired of it. So I, I'm enjoying what I'm doing a lot. <laughs> but I'm tired from it. So that's me, man. What's going on in your world? What's the, what's new? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's because it's summer. We're just in the school, just going through preparations for the next school year. And just today we went to have a fellowship with the Ebenezerians from, yeah, both of the old and new. So it was What's Ebenezerian? Day. I don't know if people listening know oh, what this yeah. is. Yeah. So, um, I graduated from Ebenezer Bible College and Seminary in from Zum- in Zamboanga City. So here I'm here in Davao City, and because we're pastors, we are assigned different places. Um, so in Davao City, we have alumni here. So we met mm. this afternoon. Oh, sorry, the whole day, and we had fun, a lot of fun. Uh, that included also our plan and how we can help our school Ebenezer. It's just so nice to be with people, you know, because that was my first time to attend. The first one in January, I wasn't able to attend this year, but we had a lot of fun. It's fun to be with, uh, you know, the ones who have been ahead of us <laughs> in the ministry. You learn a lot from them, conversations, and see a lot. So meet, meet again with a lot of friends back in the in the day, like the school. So, yeah. yeah. So, and I'm just, I've been thinking about this uh, episode and hmm. i'm just excited to go through the passage you know and use this model so that you know our listeners especially those who have been following 
would really see how it happens, you know, in the actual study. But before that, um, for those who have just tuned in, uh, on, uh, in this episode, this segment is Think With Me. We focused on studying uh, scriptures, exploring context. Um, so from our f- first episode, we give an introduction to that. Uh, I hope you can go to that, listen uh, for more details and talk about biblical interpretation itself and its significance. And in the next and then second episode, we talked about um, the previous episode that was very interesting. <laughs> we tried to reconcile a seemingly contradictory passages in the Bible. And that was from the book of James and the book of Roman, Romans. And so we clarified there that, you know, the statements of James saying, um, your faith without works is dead. It's not really a contradiction to what uh, Paul said in Romans chapter 3, that we are justified by faith. So uh, what helped us was actually the context. <laughs> and in uh, the course of our discussion, we actually, we discussed, we went through the interactions of James and Paul. That, that was very interesting because James was like, hey, bro, People think you're telling them, teaching them to abandon, you know, forget about the law. But I know you're not. So here are some people going to do some rituals. Can you go with them just to prove to them that you're not actually against the law? And Paul was like, let's go. (laughs) And that's where we see that um, they do not contradict. And if you look at the context, James was, was saying to the, to the scattered Jews, you know, around, Hey, live out your faith because we have our brothers, you know, Kapwan Yonamo Jews who are looking at you and they think you're against the law, but we are actually not. So we have to win them, you know. So show them your faith. That's yeah. that that's his point. It was that uh preaching another gospel like what other people think, like it's faith plus works. No, so he was just saying faith actually works. <laughs> yeah. Faith without works is useless. It's hard to believe that someone has faith and doesn't do anything about it you know well so, it's hard to the, the whole idea there is to say it's hard to it's hard to say that you're justified before god if all you do is say that you're justified before god right yeah. so the yeah we what we've done going from episode one to episode two is to start by introducing a model in episode one we did a brief overview mm-hmm. of the model of biblical interpretation uh which we're going to talk about more in a minute here but this is like like we mentioned peeling back an onion there are layers of contexts with an S, not just context, but contexts with an S. And so we, we introduced that model and then we applied it there in episode one to the book of Romans to give a picture of what Romans is all about, right? Then we jumped over and showed how context can also reconcile supposedly contradictory verses and passages. So that was episode number two. And for this episode, our goal now, this is the last episode we're going to do for this little series in biblical interpretation, but our goal is to walk through the model and actually apply it live here during this episode to a passage that we haven't really studied that much. We haven't looked into, we haven't prepared for purposefully so that we can show people how if you walk through this process, you will arrive at what the text is trying to teach, right? Remember we said that. 
Interpretation isn't about certainty. It's about trying to arrive at what the text is trying to teach, intending to teach. So that's where we're going here. That's been our part three introduction, episode one, applying it to contradictory, supposedly contradictory passages, episode two, mm -hmm. and now showing people exactly how we might use this model in real life in real time. Right. So I just like to emphasize this, you know, just to add, this episode will help you. I hope our goal in this episode is to help you realize that it's really bad to just take out passages from the Bible and interpret it the way we want to, the yeah. way we want to, just because you want to make a point. Because if we do that, we will miss the whole meaning of the text of what the author was trying to say because you have taken it away from where it came from and what the author yeah. was actually trying to talk about from its whole context, you know? Because yeah. uh, that is very tempting, especially to preachers, you know, when we preach, we just, or for us Christians, when we are talking to people and we use passages, we take them out and we take them out of context. <laughs> so we, especially this passage, this is very interesting. Uh, we're looking at, at it, I know some probably have uh, taken it out of context and use it in a different way. So, bro, are you, I know you're always ready. Ever ready. <laughs> okay. We're still waiting for that sponsorship, you know, ever ready. Yeah. The, yeah. <laughs> we're going to jump into a passage here in a while. Mm -hmm. Um, but one thing we have to do first before we do that is review the model and go into a little bit more depth on how the model works and how we're supposed to apply it in interpreting uh, virtually any passage in scripture. So I don't know, bro, if you want me to start that now, or is there somewhere else you want to go? Yeah. Yeah, you can, you can start that now. All right. Good. Let's begin reviewing the model. This is a, a five layer model of biblical interpretation. If we want to call it layers, cause I, I think of it again, like an onion we mentioned before, I'll give you the five layers. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to overview the five layers. Then I'm going to dive a little bit deeper into each layer. Five layers go something like this. They're all contexts, right? So number one, textual context. Number two, local context. Number three, broad context. Number four, ultimate context. And number five, historical context. Now, I did not read those in the order you should use them. I read those in the order most people use them. And that's an issue. And let me begin by showing you why that's an issue. So Dunhope, I'm going to read to you a chapter of a book. Very short. Just a couple lines. Mm -hmm. Okay? And I'm going to ask you to interpret the chapter of this book using what is normally used for interpretation. So let me read this chapter. Normally used. Okay? So here's, here's the chapter. A couple verses, if you want to call it that. Verse 1. On the eve of June 19th, I will kill you and bury your friends with you. There's nothing that you can do about it. You can't win. You can't escape. There's nowhere you can run. You can run back and forth if you want to, but you're not going to get away. I will make sure of it. I will kill you and bury your friends with you. <laughs> this is a book chapter. Verses 1 to 5. All right. So, yeah, from if I'll take it 
as it is, you know. I will think that the author wants to kill me and bury and bury with bury me with my friends. And so and would tell me that he is so angry with me that he really wants to to do it and make sure it really happens. So just just it. So if you took it, right, you're interpreting this as this means uh this author is coming to get me. You, as right. in you. And you're also saying, uh, this author, it's applied to your life. That's what you just said, right? Right. Now, here's the question. What questions do you have to ask to actually get at what this means? Mm. What the questions would you thing, ask? Yeah, the first question, the questions I would ask is, who wrote this? Interesting, because what we just saw you yes. do, you started with interpreting the words on the page and then concluded that because of the words on the page, therefore, this is about killing me, and therefore, it applies to me, right? That's how you started. You started with the textual context. Right. Okay? But then, Your text. Now, you're, now you're realizing, wait a second, who wrote this? Right. Okay, so the first question, who wrote it? Yes. And then the second question would be, who who did he wrote this to? Oh, no. so is there an intended audience? Yeah. Okay, so who wrote it? And is there an intended audience? Okay. Yes. And the third would be, why did he write this? You know? Oh, is there a reason? So, strange letter. Wait a second. So now you're starting to say, hold on, this might not be about me at all. Mm. Okay, so who, who wrote it? Who did he write it to? Or did he write it to somebody at all, right? Because we don't even know. We, it's a book, and a chapter, right? right? And what reason? Okay, what else? What else might you wonder? Yeah, I'm thinking, wait, what did he say before this chapter, this part? And what did he say after? Oh, is there anything before and after? Okay, good question. Is there anything before and after? Yeah, and wait, if this is part of a book, what is the whole book all about? What is this? What is its relationship to the whole book? What oh, is interesting. So here's another piece. Is it actually a book in the way that we understand the word book? Or what type of literature is it? Yes. Right? What is it? What is this actually? I said book because that's how we talk about the Bible. But when right. we think of book, we think of like, you know, reading Harry Potter or something, right? It's a book. But what, like, what is, what did I just read you? What is it? Is it actually a book like Harry Potter? Is it a poem? Is it a letter? Is it a song? Hmm. So I'm going to stop you there because we could keep going. I'm doing this to show if you take this with its text only in its local context and you begin there, you're going to arrive at an interpretation and an application that is so foreign to this that it will no longer resemble what the person wanted to teach. Now, let me tell you what this actually is. This is a, this is a hypothetical letter that I wrote as if I were LeBron James writing to Steph Curry 
for the NBA Finals in 2016. Okay. As we know, in the NBA Finals, the Cavs absolutely destroyed the Warriors. Okay. So LeBron James is riding to Steph Curry and he says, All right, on June 19th, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to bury your friends. Now, notice the only way to know what the word kill and bury in this letter means is the context. Otherwise, uh, LeBron James is literally going to murder Steph Curry. But since we know this is about the NBA Finals now, and we know what happened, and we know it was a letter for, from one basketball player who is competing against another, we therefore know the phrase, I will kill you, literally means I will win so well in this game that it will be as if you died and all of your friends, your team, along with you, right? Now, remember what I said. There's nothing you can do about it, right? So, confidence. What do you mean? He can't escape? He can't, he can't escape for his... No. He can't win the game, right? The in, who it's... Okay, you said it first. Who wrote it? It's LeBron James. Who did he write it to? He wrote it to Steph Curry. Why did he write it? To intimidate Steph Curry so that he might win the game when it comes up on June 19th, 2016. Now, we know the story they actually did win, but the point is to say the context, the historical context changes the entire meaning of the words that you read on the page. Because the meaning of words is determined by their usage, right? Yes. And I, bro, this is modern English. I tried to get you to interpret something in modern English and you couldn't even do it, right? We're talking yep. about Greek and Hebrew. Hebrew written before modern Hebrew when much of it did not have any vowels. We're talking about Greek, which has a completely different set of grammar instructions and rules than English. It translated into other languages, into English, and every translation is an interpretation, right? So right. the only way for us to get back is context. And that applies to everything. When I told you that this wasn't a book, it's a letter, and your mind immediately was like, oh, this changes everything. Just knowing yeah. it's a letter. Knowing it's written from one person to another. You know, it's funny. Sorry, I have to cut you. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I, just, I just remembered a Facebook page, you know, especially during finals, NBA finals season. You will see a lot of posts like, warriors, gidog dog sa cavaliers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Please explain that. what that means it's, in English for our yeah, audience. So, and it's like after a game, um, these funny pages would post something and say like, Warriors, gidog dog sa Cavalier. So in Visayan, it's like gibuli or gidog dog. Sorry, in English, it's like Warriors were beaten up hard, you know, by, by Cavaliers. But it, if you know the context, it's, you know, it's, it's basketball, so you will understand. They were really, you know, hopeless in the in the game. Yeah. They were like the, the Cavaliers were really dominating the game. So yep. it's just funny, you know, when you read it in the in the in the language, and then if you will li li interpret it literally, it's like yeah. just funny. Yeah, yeah. And so I, again, I bring this story up because now what I want to do is go over the model again, right? And so hmm. we're gonna go over the model again. And basically, the model is exact. What I just did in interpreting that short story, that short letter, 
is pretty much what you do to apply to biblical passages to come to what the passage intended to communicate. Now, I'm going to change the language we've used in session one and two, or in in, in uh, episode one and two. I think you can use both, but I, I'm going to change it to this. What a passage intended to communicate, rather than just what a passage intends to teach. Because sometimes mm. passage intends to communicate something, but not necessarily teach something, right? So, like, uh, you know, when the pagans bash heads against rocks, it's not intending to teach to do that. It's intending to communicate that that happened, right? So, I'm going to use that language. Let's get to the model. Before, when I read this model to you just a couple minutes ago, I said number one was textual context. We cannot start there. If you look on your screen and you're watching this now, uh, I have the model up on the screen. You'll see on the left-hand side, it says myth. Start from textual context and go all the way out to the outer ring. That is a myth. You cannot start there because just looking at the words, you can interpret them any way you want because literally they mean something as a word. But right. literally isn't about the actual meaning of the words. Literally is about what it literally intends to communicate. And so as we've said before, and we're going to review it again, we have to start with the historical context and the types of questions you need to ask yourself, which is why I asked you, Dunhope, what questions would you ask me to come to this, right? To come to the interpretation, the types of questions you have to ask yourself are, what was the historical and cultural setting of the author and his audience? When you ask this question, the other questions you uncover are things like Dunhope asked, who wrote it? Who did they write it to? What type of literature is this? Is it a song? Is it poetry? Is it a letter? Is it a codex? Is it a type of book that we're not sure of yet? What is the genre and style of writing? Okay, so you uncover all of these different types of questions. You uncover what was the intent of the author's writing. And so, what you're doing here in the historical context is you're laying the foundation for what is going on at the time during when this particular thing was written. The historical context determines what words the author uses, okay, first and foremost, what words the author uses, number two, why they choose to use those words, and number three, what those words actually mean. The example of this is in my letter from LeBron James to Steph Curry, right? The historical context determined that he was okay to use a phrase such as, hey, I'll kill you, right? Because we know in this context, nobody's going to see it as he's going to literally murder him because we use this in culture and in history. So let me say this again. The types of questions you want to ask in historical context are what was the cultural, the historical setting of the author and their audience in the place that they were? Who was the author? Who was he writing to? What's the genre? And what this context does is it determines what words the author uses, so the actual words they choose, why they choose to use those words, and what those words actually mean, okay? This is the first and most important because it uncovers everything going on in the scene, everything going on in the setting, everything going on in the place. And the reality of this context, the reality of discovering this, 
is it takes a lot of work. <laughs> and that's just the reality. That's right. We don't live at this time. We don't live in this place. And we're often ignorant of it. And that's a fault of education. That's our own fault. That's, I mean, there, there's a variety of things we could blame. But the reality is to figure this out takes a lot of work. And uh, we're going to get to this in a bit with a passage and show you exactly how to uncover uh, historical and cultural settings. How to, when you ask a question, right, you don't want to just ask it. You want to figure out a response or an answer to the question. Mm. And we're going to give you a bunch of tools, a bunch of resources that you can use to do this um, with a case study of a specific passage. Okay. That's historical context. We want to uncover everything going on in the place, everything going on about the author, everything going on about the audience. What's happening? Why is it happening? What happened to the governor or the king in that place? You know, this all determines, once again, what words the author uses, why they use those words, and what those words actually mean. Okay. Next layer. The next layer is what we call the ultimate context the ultimate context has to do with the whole bible as a collection or a library of books overall this particular context is focused not just on what does the bible say right because that would be textual context but rather what does the bible mean so the types of questions you're going to ask yourself when trying to determine what is the ultimate context of the Bible and how this passage fits in is first and foremost, what is the ultimate context of the Bible? Do you know it, right? Oh, do I know the ultimate context of the Bible? What is the purpose for which the Bible was compiled as many books in a library? Because mm. this will help to uncover again, why the author chose the words, phrases that he chose to use. What books did he reference, right? Because in the ultimate context of the Bible, you're going to see that many authors reference others in this collection, right? You'll see Paul reference Old Testament all the time. You'll see John, especially in Revelation. I mean, there's like an Old Testament passage in every chapter, right? You want to ask questions like this. What are the major themes of the Bible? What are the major genres in the Bible? What kinds of literature make up the Bible? I think the best way to begin this, and I'm going to give a phrase, so I'm going to kind of give away the ultimate context here. The best way to begin the discovery of the ultimate context of the Bible is to do what a Bible project does. And they say this, the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Okay. So what you could ask then when you're looking at a passage or a book, how does this particular chapter, passage or verse, participate in the unified story that leads to Jesus. It may not be about Jesus because not everything in the Bible is about Jesus, but how does it lead to Jesus, right? Because the ultimate context of the Bible was put together as a story, a collection of books in a library that lead to Jesus. Now, when you ask this question, it also takes a lot of work. Because you have to begin to understand things like canonicity. It's a big word. Oh, how was the Bible composed and brought together, right? How did we get what we call the canon or the collection of the books that we canon. use in the Bible, right? 
you've got to study the, there's a great book called canonicity and inspiration by our laird harris good book uh but the ultimate picture of the bible is that every one of these passages is going to point to jesus somehow to lead to jesus somehow and that determines how we interpret it and how we apply it right since we're talking about biblical interpretation okay move on to the next one the broad context broad context is about let's say you're reading chapter two of a book uh let's pick one romans you're reading romans chapter two what is romans about right now we're talking about a book as a whole is romans a letter is romans a poem is romans a a, a, a didactic speech right what is the book all about so the questions you could ask for broad context are what's the context of the book the passage is written in why was it written what language was it written in what genre was it written in what major themes come up in this book this is the broad context and then of course if we jump back we'd say okay now how does romans fit into the whole uh picture of the story of the bible pointing to jesus right so now we're working our way inward we have the historical context we have the ultimate context we have the context of the book now we can jump into our chapter Let's say you're reading a verse, uh, a verse, let's say you're reading uh, Romans chapter two, verse two, for example. What is Romans chapter two's thought process? Here are the questions you want to ask yourself. What's the context of the chapter the passage is located in? What's being addressed? What is the train of thought? What's happening in this paragraph or in this sentence? Where does it fit with the verses before it and after it, right? Because man, I have to say it again, verses and chapters are not inspired by God. <laughs> like We chose them purposefully so we could cite scripture. And that's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. But verses and chapters are not inspired by God. So we need to be able at least to have the context of the book, that's old, uh, broad context, and the context of the chapter. What's going on around the verse that you're reading? Again, if you're watching this, this has been up on your screen. You can see our, uh, our model there. And then finally, finally, we can get to what we call the textual context. This is where you begin to look at individual words. And you can ask questions like this. What do the words in the passage actually mean to the original author and the audience? You already have this information because you've gone through the layers of context. What are the words trying to convey when they're put together in these sentences for this reading? This is also known as word studies and we're going to show you here how you can take one word in greek or one word in hebrew and it can mean a variety of different things depending on the context i illustrated this to you with the story of lebron james and steph curry right like i use the word kill and bury deliberately knowing that the almost always bro almost always the word kill means to take someone's life and almost always the word bury means to put them in the ground. However, there are a bazillion contexts where kill doesn't mean that and where bury doesn't mean that, right? This is the same with scripture. Context determines usage and meaning. So this is the model. You can listen back if you uh, forget the questions, you can write them down or you can reach out to us and we'll give you the, the picture of the model. What we want to do from here is show you just how we actually use this 
to interpret scripture to come to a faithful remember we said doesn't need to be certain it doesn't need to be 100 true it needs to be a faithful interpretation of scripture based on the best evidence we have so that we can faithfully apply it to our lives in the proper way it was intended to communicate okay so once again we don't start with textual context we don't start in the middle and work our way out we work our way into the middle from the outside that is how we are this is how you come to the most faithful interpretation of scripture so i know that's long uh for those of you listening i'm going to remove the model from the screen and now we're going to get into a dialogue about a specific passage of scripture mm. <laughs> so where are we going from here dunhope this is going to get real interesting yes so um maybe for those who are listening if you have your bibles it will be very interesting if you have them so you can look at the passage or the because if you're going if if you're listening and you're you will go through this you know with us then it will be very helpful if you have the bible there so so you can follow you know you can just you can just you can just you don't just listen but you also follow what we're talking about you can see it right in your from your bible so we would be so let's start with this don't hope let's start with this what verse are we focusing on what one verse are we focusing on? yes so we will be looking at first corinthians chapter 8 verse 1. oh which part of verse 1 that's interesting a b c or d which which part <laughs> we'll be looking at b you know okay. the, the the second sentence of the of the verse so let, just let me read this to you guys um first corinthians 8 verse 1 it says now concerning i'm by the way i'm reading uh from esv version english standard i will also be using ESV. esv so nice okay so it says now concerning food offered to idols we know that all of us possess knowledge this knowledge pops up but love builds up classic passage classic passage let's let's just quote it bro it says knowledge puffs up but love no. builds up that's what it says right yes you know that's why you know it's kidding <laughs> before we go into that <laughs> so now um we will be using the the model as to trying to understand this specific verse so we will be starting with historical context let's why don't we why don't we go ahead more. and uh let's do it the wrong way let's start <laughs> okay. with the text let's start yeah, with the textual context let's start with the textual context all let's right look at the words sure. let's look at the words <clears throat> yes so if you read this it says from the start now concerning food offered to idols we know that and there's a quotation there all of us possess knowledge mm. so if you take it you know you will say well everyone of us have knowledge mm -hmm. and then the next part says this knowledge these things that we know pops up but love builds up yeah and in greek the so, first knowledge is the word gnosis it's the same gnosis. way we think about knowledge 
uh, intelligence, understanding, even specifically used for knowledge of the Christian knowledge of the Christian religion. I mean, this is the word we get knowledge. He says it again, right? Gnosis physio. Gnosis makes you stronger, more firm, right? So the words, yeah, what you said, knowledge. I'm looking at the Greek right now. Yeah. So if we look at it, then we will we, we will uh, understand it in a way that it's all about knowledge, right? It's all about knowledge and knowledge per se in itself that it pops up and that love builds up. But so what does that yeah, mean? So, How would we apply that? So this means that. Uh, Knowledge is important, but love is importanter. <laughs> love is more important. So, yeah, you gotta love people, and yeah, you, you may pursue knowledge, you may know knowledge, but you may know things in general. But you gotta love people. You gotta well, give love more importance. If I read this and I see something like uh, knowledge puffs up, that to me mm -hmm. looks like Paul. Well, or the author. We haven't gotten into who wrote it yet, but that right. looks to me like the author is saying, the more you pursue knowledge, the more puffed up you're going to be. Now, the word puffed up means something in specific, right? And it means uh, arrogance. <laughs> it's like, okay. So, if I pursue knowledge, by if we just look at the words, I'm going to become arrogant. However, if I mm. pursue love, I'm going to be an encourager. That's what I interpret. Mm based on just the Greek words alone, right? It says, knowledge, physio, buffs up, er makes arrogant, actually, is what it technically means. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. 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 Love, and you know what the word edify means, right? It's this idea of building a house. And it's this idea of building a house that comes from when Jesus said, build your house on a solid rock. Right? So, knowledge makes you an arrogant fool but if you love well you're building your house on a solid rock firm foundation right if i just look at the words in the verse then this is the interpretation i come to yeah and this is where you in application you would tell people don't pursue knowledge pursue love <laughs> yeah or be be very cautious about how much you know because knowledge puffs up and love builds up right I've heard yeah. this. I've heard this many, 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 many times. Yeah, right? Don't I mean, study Christian theology because knowledge puffs up. Right? It's about how much you love people. Or don't study philosophy. Right? Because uh, you're <laughs> you only going to get away from you're that. only going to get arrogant. Right? Yes. So, you but is that is that what this actually means? Mm, interesting, huh? If you look at the context. Oh, nah. context. Okay, context. so before we read the whole chapter, because we're going to get to that in the local context, right? Let's set up the history. Let's set up the history of the entirety of the Corinthian events, okay? Now, to those listening, to those watching, how do I begin to determine historical context? I didn't live there. I'm not from there. What in the world am I going to do? Listen, I told you it requires work, and it requires a lot of work. So I'm going to give you my steps 
for how I begin to determine historical context to come to a faithful interpretation. The first place I go, the, the, before I do anything, the first place I go is to the early church writings on any of these particular passages, okay? Now, why do I do that? Why do I do that? I do that for a number of reasons, but the first and foremost is they are closer to the events happening in the time and place, right? right. We have tons of early church writing from this era, okay? Tons of early church writing on most, if not all, there's a little bit we're missing, on most New Testament books, right? So we're talking about the New Testament here. Uh, I would do the same for the Old Testament, of course, but I'm just going to stick with our example here, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So the number one, the first place I go to, is I look for early church writing on 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Okay? Where do I turn for this? Two places I turn in specific. Number one, the ancient Christian commentary on Scripture. Okay? I'll say mm -hmm. it again. The ancient Christian commentary on Scripture. This is a commentary full of quotations from the early church leadership on most, if not all, books of the Bible, passages and verses. So, number one, I start there, ancient Christian commentary on Scripture. Number two, I go to newadvent.org. Newadvent.org has, uh, it's like endless, I can't even tell you how much, almost endless resources for free from the early church. Endless resources for free from the early church translated into English. Okay? Mm -hmm. So what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to look for believers first and what they say about what's going on at the time and what the book is about. So I won't start looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. I'll start looking for what they say about Corinth in general, about Paul, mm -hmm about the state of the Corinthian church in general, about the state of the church in that area in general, right? I'll start with them. What do they say? That's the first thing I do. Early church leadership, early church writings. The second thing I do is I begin to look into the history, the history mm -hmm. of the place, regardless of if it's written for, from Christians or from uh, early church leadership. The way that I do this is... Uh, colloquially, it depends. So I'll either use Encyclopedia Britannica, which will give us pictures of, you know, I know uh, this is First Corinthians, and since I have some early church writings, I know that this is written in a place called Corinth. Uh, so I'll look up what was Corinth like in 30 AD? What was Cor Corinth like in uh, 50 BCE? Remember, I don't know when this was written yet. I have no idea. I don't know any of that stuff. I'm, I don't want to be biased. So what I'm trying to do is get a picture of the culture and the history before I bias myself with the uh, date of writing, the author, so on and so forth. Okay. So I start with early church writings on this to try to get a picture of what they say. Then I move into history. One of the things that you can do is, and this is brilliant. Number, I'm gonna, let me qualify. Never use Wikipedia. However, go to Wikipedia, look at a sentence, and then look for the footnote after the sentence. Click on the footnote, mm. and it will take you down to a document that's usually a scholarly book or a scholarly paper. You want to find that paper and find that book and read it 
in order to determine whether or not it's trustworthy, okay? This is particularly helpful with history. So I will look for the history and the setting of the place and the culture in the time that I'm thinking about. Remember, I don't know it, so, you know, 0 AD to 100 AD. People, this doesn't take as much time as you think it does, okay? It, you're just trying to get a picture of what's going on. That's second. Mm. So first, early church writings. I want to know what they say. Number two, the history and culture from any source. Um, then this number three is where you start to get a better picture. This is where I look into contemporary commentaries. Contemporary commentaries. Mm. There are a few that I really trust that I really turn to often. However, however, I deliberately choose from four different perspectives every time. Four different perspectives to read from, to be able to cross-compare. Number one, I pick a, uh, an academic commentary. The one I typically use is the Expositor's Bible Commentary. This is one of the more academic commentaries, one of the ones that has an author per book. So it's a huge commentary set with one author per book. So this is like varied, right? It's got many people. They're all commenting back and forth, many editors. Expositor's Bible Commentary is incredible and it is huge. And there are free versions of it available on ebook. So I start with Expositor's Bible Commentary. Okay. Number two, I go into uh, a more contemporary commentary. I usually do two or three of these. The one I start with is the IVP Bible Background Commentary. IVP Bible Background Commentary. New Testament was written and edited by Craig Keener. Old Testament was written and edited by John Walton. Okay? So this gives you more of a uh, background of what's going on in the story. What's happening? Written by guys who are balanced. So this is a more balanced commentary. Expositors is, is kind of academic, and I don't agree with a lot of the things they write. But how do I know that? Well, because I moved to this second commentary, right? A more contemporary one. So I, I often use IVP. I will also use the Zondervan Illustrated Bible Backgrounds commentary, which is similar uh, to the IVP, but it's also more expanded, more broad, right? So I start with a real academic one, expositors. I cross in, in how these commentaries work is they give an introduction, they give a setting, they give language, they give all these things. I'll move from there then into that contemporary commentary, and I'll look at that. The next thing I do is I find a Roman Catholic commentary on the book or the chapter or the historical setting. And I specifically look for a Roman Catholic commentary because the Roman Catholic Church is old. Yes. And just because I believe the Catholic Church is wrong on a variety of things does not mean everything is wrong, especially when it comes to history. They often have a great picture of what actually happened because they were there. It's like they're, they're in the place, right? So, like I said, I do four things. So, I look for a good Catholic commentary. I'll usually find two or three of those. Uh, and it doesn't need to be a full commentary set. I'll look for uh, maybe a Catholic scholar who is talking about a particular passage. And then the fourth that I look into is an Eastern Orthodox commentary on the same passage. Okay? So, what this does is it allows me to cross-check and cross-reference from basically the whole Orthodox Christian perspective. Academic, which is usually Reformed or somewhere along those lines. Contemporary, which is more Evangelical balanced. Roman Catholic and Orthodox, which are ancient and historical and have uh, generally better information on those particular historical and cultural settings than, say, a common Evangelical uh, 
commentary, right? That's how I determine historical context, is going into those three pieces. So looking at the early church writings, first and foremost, looking at historical writings, not even from church leaders, but from people at the time, people writing about the time, and then looking into modern commentaries in those four fields. First field, academic. Yes. Second field, contemporary. Third field, Roman Catholic. Fourth field, Eastern Orthodox. It's very intentional. What that will do is, it's not going to give you 100% certainty, but it's going to give you a great idea of what's happening at the time. What's going yes. on? Why was this written? What's the author? Who's the setting? When was it written? So on, like all of these things, right? And this is what we find with the Corinthian situation. What's right? happening? The Corinthian <laughs> situation is real interesting. Uh, I have made a timeline of what happened in the Corinthian situation. I'm going to read some of that here. So, what we find out is that this this is a letter. This is a letter written by Paul. It's a letter written by Paul, probably in the spring of 55. Okay, spring of 55. You want to call it AD, whatever you want to call it, uh, CE. It's up to you. And it was written, and we know this because it's in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8. It was written in Ephesus. So Paul is writing this to the church at Corinth. But there's a lot that follows this, and there's a lot that precedes this, okay? So Paul writes this in 55. However, um, Paul had to make a visit in the summer or fall of 55 AD, and it's called a painful visit in 2 Corinthians, okay? So, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he had to make a painful visit. He also says he had to make a second visit as a painful visit, okay? So, Paul's first visit, he quotes, was sometime in 50 to 52 AD during his second missionary journey. He visited Corinth with either Silas or Timothy. We see it in Acts chapter 18, verses 1, 11, and 18, okay? So we have a painful visit. Before 1 Corinthians is written, Paul shows up during his missionary journey, okay? That's interesting. We know the visit had one purpose. Well, we don't know one. It, one or two. It either was to rebuke those who had previously gotten into a seriously dark situation, or it was to reinforce what had already been written in, in his second visit. He's going to reinforce 1 Corinthians. So, first hmm. visit, eighty fifty. Paul writes 1 Corinthians. He visits again in AD 55 as another painful visit. And then AD 56, Paul writes what's called a severe letter. We don't have it. We don't have the letter. But we know it was taken by Titus. 2 Corinthians mm. chapter 7, verses 6 to 16 say that Titus took a severe letter to Corinth. Now, we know this isn't referring to 1 Corinthians because there's no similarity. The only similarity between the two letters is 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2. But Paul refers to this severe letter. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 9 makes reference to a non-existing letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, instructing them, hey guys, like, why are you getting, why are you doing all this stuff with these people having sex with everyone? It's like, please stop. We don't need to deal with this kind of thing. This is what pagans do. So Paul is belaboring a point in that severe letter, right? It wouldn't make sense for Paul to write that in 1 Corinthians because he would just be saying the same thing he's always said. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 and 9, inform us that this severe letter, he calls it a letter of sorrow, 
the letter of tears. It dealt primarily with this guy who did wrong and his punishment. That's not what First Corinthians dealt with, right? So that's in AD 56, right? Paul writes a severe letter. He has a painful visit. He writes a severe letter. He has another painful visit. He writes a severe letter, okay? This letter was probably, this severe letter, is probably really personal. And we no longer have it. It's probably something that Paul was trying to engage, to unify, and to get the church to back out of a severely immoral situation. In AD 56, we know that Paul leaves Ephesus. This is called the Demetrius Riot in Acts chapter 19. It says there he makes a quick stop in Troas, hoping to meet Titus returning from Corinth. It's in 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 12 to 13. So Acts, Paul's meeting the guy he just sent to visit and drop off the letter in Corinth, right? In AD 56. In the summer, Paul's in Macedonia in 2 Corinthians 7, 5. In AD 56, Titus finally arrives in Macedonia. They weren't able to uh, exactly meet in the way that they wanted. So in 2 Corinthians 7, 6 to 16, Titus arrives and tells Paul everything that in- occurred in Corinth due to the severe letter being received by them. Okay. And then in the fall of AD 56, Paul writes 2 Corinthians. It's written in Macedonia. We see that in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 5, and so on. I'm not going to read the rest of them. Paul writes 2 Corinthians in response to what Titus tells him about the Corinthian situation. Right? So this, now, why do I tell us all of this after 1 Corinthians? I tell us all of this because it shows us what's going on in the Corinthian church. Before 1 Corinthians is written, there is serious uproar in Corinth. The church is divided because of societal issues, cultural issues. They're having their own culture war. Like this, is, this is what's happening, right? Paul is writing to Corinth and visiting Corinth and sending people to Corinth because they consistently keep buying into this, like, oh, let's have a culture war within the church. The culture war within the church causes division within the church. And division within the church is causing Christ to be blasphemed by pagan non-believers. Right? Yeah. Why do you think 1 Corinthians 10 to 12 is almost exactly the same as Romans 12? Why do you think Paul writes of one body in Christ in 1 Corinthians and he writes of one body in Christ in Romans? The letter is about a divided church and reconciling them together over these extremely moral issues, but also the fact that they've turned culture and politics into the issues they divide over in the church. Now, there's one more piece of information I want to give us about Corinth. I want to read to you one of the more interesting things we find that most people don't know about. A disciple of the apostles named Clement, who was born in 35 AD, two years after Jesus died, He wrote a letter to the church in Corinth sometime before 70 AD. Remember, Paul wrote 2 Corinthians probably at the end of 56 to 59, something like that. Clement writes another letter to Corinth. After Paul had already passed, after the 2 Corinthians biblical letters, Paul or Clement writes a letter to them. He's a leader of the church. He's a disciple of the apostles. This is what Clement says in chapter 47 of his letter. This is... Shocking. Your recent division 
is worse than the former, which took place in the times of Paul. Good Lord. (laughs) Why do I read this? I read this to show you that Paul is writing a letter to a group of people who are in a severely dark and divisive place. So much so that even these letters did not fix the situation that was going on in the church. This is how Clement ends this chapter. I'm going to read what he says at the end of his chapter. He says, and this, this report has not only reached us, but those who are unconnected with us, the unbelievers, those who don't know Jesus. And he says, so that through what you are doing, the name of the Lord is blasphemed, while danger is also brought upon yourselves. So Paul, writing a letter to a group of people who are in serious division, who are seriously broken, who seriously don't know how to fix this problem, who are seriously divided, who need some serious God and Holy Spirit-inspired help. This is the historical and cultural situation of every chapter in 1 Corinthians. What Paul's doing, the words he chooses, right? What words he chooses to use, why he chooses to use them, and what they mean are determined by this determined by this situation in Corinth. It is dark and it is broken. And we have much more leading up to the whole picture of 1 Corinthians 8. Remember, it's a letter. There's no chapters. There's no verses. And we get now to see the bigger, broader historical picture. Pagan area, tons of non-Christians, tons of people who don't follow Jesus, who love to sleep with temple prostitutes and all these. And it's normal. This is normal for them. They have cultural and political fights, and the church is like, you know, we'll bring some of that in. (laughs) We'll we'll bring in some of the culture wars and the division into our church. And Paul is like, stop. Stop doing these things. Not because he's Mm -hmm. making theological statements for the sake of theology, but because he wants the church to be united, just like he says in 1 Corinthians 12. So this Mm -hmm. this is the situation. This is the whole historical context. So you see, when you read the, the 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 letters of of Paul and even the severe letter that we don't have now, you would understand why Paul is that serious, you know. <laughs> that it's yeah. even called severe letter or a letter of sorrow or tears. Like Paul is really broken for what is happening in in uh, in Corinthians, and that's I mean that's the reason also why we see twelve and thirteen why Paul talks about. Um, love, you know. Yeah. So, is it is it is a community of believers? Yep. You are you have, you have been you are being divided by these things, and so the solution was love, and he sees it. He, he sees it, and yep. That's that's see that's the key, you know. When you look at history and you consult uh, different sources, it yes. will give you a very wide. Uh, view of what's actually happening and understanding. Yep, and the sources that I use for this, I already named two of them, but I've used the Expositor's Bible Commentary. I've used the uh, Epistle of, or the Letter of Clement to the Corinthians. I've used Expositor's Bible Commentary on 1 Corinthians. 
I've been using the whole counsel of God on 1 Corinthians, the IVP mm. Bible background commentary on the New Testament, 1 Corinthians. And this has helped to reframe and picture together what's going on in this area. Right. And that leads us into the ultimate context. How in the world did we get this letter in our canon or our library of scripture? Why does it fit? Well, this is an easy one. If you look at the major themes of the Bible, and this requires work to learn these, you're going to see it's a, it's a unified story that leads to Jesus. We have that as our baseline. Okay, that's cool, but what are we trying to do here? In the New Testament, people are coming to Christ, and Christ tells them, I'll build my church. Then he prays in the end of John 17 that the church would be one as he and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one. So we come to a situation where people who say they follow Jesus are divided along every line you can possibly think of. They're divided in who they follow as their leader. They're divided in their issues on sex and who they're going to sleep with and who they can't sleep with. They're divided on politics. They're divided on culture. They're divided on debating and food and all of these things. If the Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus and we have a divided church, then we have an issue with the unified story. The ultimate context that we're working with here is that 1 Corinthians, and I would even argue 2 Corinthians, is in the place of showing the church what happens when you make the the wrong things, the wrong things, and the right things, the wrong things. (laughs) There's a division in Christ. And Clement gives us a, a, a picture of what happens when there's division in Christ over things that don't matter. Yes. Non Christians blaspheme Christ. People think, oh, it's today. We're so different today, man. Look at all these people who hate Jesus and hate the gospel. It's like, no, this is the same problem that's been going on forever. And most of it's our fault, right? So the ultimate context of 1 Corinthians is that it fits in the place of saying, if you're divided over politics and you're divided over societal issues, what's going to happen internally is going to happen doubly externally. What I mean by that is, your internal divisions, they're not going to stay internal. You think they are. You think, oh, it's just in the church, we're just fighting inside over these politics and these societal issues and these and this and that, and uh, this sexual issue over here, we're brushing it under the rug, we don't care, nobody outside will know. Yeah, the problem is they do. And Paul tells them that, Clement has to write it again afterwards, and we even have more letters after Clement, right? Right. It fits in in saying, if we're going to say this Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus, the church has to be a unified body that represents Jesus. Yes. And in Corinth, they were not a unified body, which meant the non-Christian mm-hmm. pagans in Corinth would not only not come to Christ, but they'd blaspheme him. Paul is mm-hmm. reconciling the church so the church can maintain its mission to the non-Christians in Corinth. We right. see that in every chapter, every chapter. The, that's the ultimate context of the book of Corinthians, First Corinthians. Yeah, that's very interesting, the ultimate context, because we never, especially with Paul, you know, how, with how serious he deals with, with uh, disunity or with conflicts. We understand why Jesus, it's, gen, it's, it's in John 17, right, where he really prayed for unity yes. of, the, of, of, of the believers. 
Yeah, John and, 17. Talk, yes, and talking about talking about love because it's I, it's still in the book of John where Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for each other. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So it gives you that 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 context, you know, that Paul understands what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus. And right. those how, are the words of Jesus, okay. right? By the way, you love yeah. that you'll be unified. That that's if yes. we're leading to Jesus, then ultimate context really is the words of Jesus on the Old Testament. Right. That's where we're trying to pinpoint, right? How does this book again fit in the canon of scripture? Why is it here? And what is it trying to communicate, right? What is it trying to communicate? Yeah. <laughs> and I, I just remember James in where James where where he's words his letters are actually inspired it was inspired by the sermon from the mount right in the mount yep. so and he, yeah so he's basically reminding uh the 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 the, 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 the jewish uh, christians about what christ actually taught yeah so it's and here we have gentile gentile christians and this gets now uh so we've gone to historical mm. to ultimate this gets now into our next layer of context, which is the broad context, the context of the book of 1 Corinthians. Now, we've overlapped some of this already in the historical context, right. but what we're going to mm. see here in the broad context of the book is that it's a letter. It's a letter written to a divided church. It's a letter written to a divided church after a visit by the person who visited on his missionary journey. This uh, broad context is set among Gentile Christians, people who had come to Christ out of a pagan background. Now, we know there's a few Jews scattered here and there, but the primary leadership of this church was people who came from a really dark background, people who didn't have mm. the same concept of law as the Jewish Christians did, right? So that's yeah. why Romans looks a lot different than 1 Corinthians. Similar struggles, yeah, the but way it looks, Paul... that's right. Paul doesn't yes. often write about the same stories in 1 Corinthians as he right. does in Romans, right? You don't see these stories yeah. of Abraham because they're not needed. They wouldn't get them. In fact, uh, you read it, bro. That quotation, right, in verse 1, is not from the yes. Hebrew Bible. That's a pagan quotation, right? It's in quotes in the Bible. Mm. Paul's quoting something yes. they would have understood, right? So this, the whole broad context of uh, of the whole book of 1 Corinthians, we've already went over a lot of it, but it gives us a ton of information about what's going on here, who it's about, right. how Paul's going to write, what he's going to say, why he's going to say it. And now, since we have all of these layers, we have so much weight, right. we have so many things that we can use, we jump into chapter 8. Interesting. And in chapter I'm eight, <laughs> we see we see something we we can own. Now we're gonna have to do a little bit of wrestling here because I think Dunhope's gonna have to also quickly talk about chapter one to seven. But I think we can just get it from chapter eight alone, knowing what it is that we know now. Right. I think we can just get it. Like this is the beauty of context. You don't actually need all of the details of everything else if you have the context, because now we know what's happening. So we can take it and interpret it and find out what it's intending to communicate. So for those of you listening, for those of you watching, what we're going to do now is read the entire chapter 
of 1 Corinthians 8 with all of this in our head, what's been going on in the background, what's happening in this church, and why it's happening. And I want you to listen to verse 1 again, because remember we started with that. We said this is our prime text that we want to figure out. We started there. I want you to listen to verse 1 intently, and then I want you to listen to the rest of the passage and see how different now everything seems to be. Right. So, All right, bro, read it. Yeah, I hope you have your Bibles to those who are listening. Okay, so verse 1 says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs off, but loves, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Verse 7, However, not all, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Mm. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care. That this, right, that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he, not be, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? Mm. And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed and the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, mm. sinning against your brothers and one and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Wow. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, least, lest I will make my brother stumble. Now, bro, I have to say, like, this, it gets me so excited because seeing how context opens up the meaning of, like, I, I almost, like, have, you know, like, watery eyes because it's so brilliant, bro. So, okay, yeah. I'm going to read verse one again, and then I want you to tell us the context of what we just read. I'm going to read verse one again. I'm just going to read the part of it that's important. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. What's the local context? This is our next layer, our fifth layer of context. All right. So What's going see, on? As we, yes, so as we, you know, so building up from the context that we have talked about, you know, a while ago, historical, ultimate, and broad context, we're seeing that Paul is actually dealing with a lot of issues, right? So he's, he has, he's talking about political issues. He's talking about marriage talking about sex it's talking about worshiping to idols and here as we look at the local context in the chapter specifically chapter eight we see that he is talking about a specific topic and oh. a, spe a specific issue oh. right? and in the in context he's this is the key now listen carefully 
he is specifically talking about knowledge about something. Oh. And that, <laughs> and that knowledge in it, uh, uh, per se itself. So, in the local context, we understand, if you read the whole, I mean, if you just read it, you will realize, okay, so this is not about knowledge, but it is about knowledge about eating food. Yes. This is not, that's it. Let's, let's, let's get that right. This is not about knowledge. This is about knowledge that eating food sacrificed to idols is okay. No, look, verse 10. I'm going to read verse 10. For if anyone sees you who have this uh, knowledge, knowledge. <laughs> what knowledge? Eating in an idol's Eat. temple. So, okay, okay. Keep going. Keep going. I, I could get on a tangent about this, but keep going. Yeah, I know. I know it's very so so that's it. So the way you interpret this, whenever when Paul said this knowledge pops up, but love builds up. If you read the whole context, you will read the, the whole chapter, you will realize that he's talking about, you know, just because you have this knowledge, therefore you're doing this. But but he's He's not against that knowledge, you know. You see, he's not against that knowledge, but what he is against is that when you do when you do that, without caring for the people who doesn't actually have that knowledge. So, yes, you have that knowledge, but don't be proud about it. Knowledge of because if you have, what if you have a brother who who has no knowledge about you know eating eating food from from the temple, then if he's then if he will do that and it's, if he will actually eat and think that it's actually okay to eat food, you know, given to the idols, then he will stumble. So that is his point. Yes. So you see, to avoid your brother from stumbling, he's not saying, don't pursue knowledge. That's but right, that's not, not at all. Point. Not at all. Not at all. But his point is, if you have knowledge about the things of these things, that's okay. But if you have a friend or a brother in Christ who doesn't actually know, and if eating will cause him to stumble, then don't do it. Yeah. Yeah, he's literally so saying, he's, he's saying, you have knowledge that it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. And because you have that knowledge, therefore, you apply it by eating food sacrificed to idols. You're right. 100%, hmm. you are right. But here's the problem. Just because you know that and do that does not mean it's going to help other people follow Christ or come to Christ. Notice what he says all the way in 7 to the end of the chapter. He says, buddy, it's good to have this knowledge. It's good to do this. But what you do with it and where you do that is important. If you are hanging out with a brother, a guy who just came out of a pagan background, a guy who's been sacrificing to idols his whole life, and his conscience says, I can't do this. He doesn't have the knowledge that it's okay. In fact, in his brain, it's not okay. And Paul says, that guy's wrong. For sure, he's wrong. But the point is, he is in sin because he's trying to come out of the pagan life. And what happens for him is he's still sacrificing to idols. <laughs> and you are leading him to still sacrifice to idols. This has nothing to do with knowledge. It has to do with knowing that something is okay and exploiting that causing someone else to sin in a specific area of knowing it's okay to eat food that has been sacrificed to an idol. So, the point here is that if somebody quotes to you, knowledge puffs up and love builds up, 
and they quote it out of its context about all knowledge, if you just get a bunch more knowledge, you'll become arrogant. Number one, that's not even close to what Paul says. Number two, yes. the context is knowledge of it being okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. It's not knowledge in general. It's not knowledge per se. You said that, Dunhope. It's not knowledge per se. It's knowledge that it's okay to eat food sacrificed to idols. How does that make you arrogant? Because you're choosing to eat food sacrificed to idols in the presence of someone who still thinks he's sacrificing to an idol. Yes, That's I'm, how it I'm makes you arrogant. Imagine, yes, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to imagine how this actually happens. So, for example, if... We, we both of us are going are going to to a place and because I know it's okay to eat this, I'll say then the arrogant way of say, of doing it is say is you know I don't I don't care if this guy this guy will will stumble or not, but I will just eat this because I know yeah yeah because I know it's actually okay so and yeah. then that will result my brother to be confused and what what is happening and now he's Why in sin he yes yeah. so now he is, sacrifices to an idol yes. Yes. You've, you you so have led like, uh, him to sin. Yes. So that's the actual, you know, uh, that, that's what it looks like to be arrogant of having knowledge of something, you know, like that's right. this specific in uh, Okay, let's 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 school. let's say that exactly what you just said. That's exactly it. Knowledge itself does not make you arrogant. Knowledge that yes. is applied in a way that leads other people to sin is what makes you arrogant. Oh, I know it's okay. Somebody else is struggling. It's another example. Mm -hmm. uh, there are people who are, I don't know, let me pick a, a crazy example. Oh, yeah, here's a good one. There are people who are addicted to alcohol, right? Mm. There are people who are addicted to alcohol. They can't even go to a restaurant that serves alcohol. In your mind, you're like, oh, it's okay. I can go to this restaurant. No problem whatsoever. I know it's okay. And so I decide, without telling my friend where we're going, to invite him to this restaurant that serves alcohol. I know it's that is that is the arrogance Paul is talking about. Yes. You have yeah. the right knowledge and you use it for the wrong purposes. You have the right knowledge, but you're not doing it to love people. You're doing it to right. serve yourself, right? The knowledge yes. is irrelevant. The knowledge isn't yes. the point. The point is what you do with what you know. That's you know. what he's saying here. And I love this. Yes. The only way to know that. The only way <laughs> say it again say it again one more time context <laughs> say it for the people in the back say it for the people in america context. and other places yeah. <laughs> that's the only way that you can read this passage properly otherwise you just read it yeah. and say uh, don't pursue knowledge it puffs up which is literally if yeah. you told paul that who's one of the smartest people in the world if you told jesus that they would <laughs> rebuke you to your face yeah <laughs> that's why is i love it? this i love that we just sh like i love this yeah um it's just i mean both of us are students of the bible right and this is just the feeling right when the satisfying feeling when you get into what the author is actually Intending. trying to say yeah it's 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 joy it that's inspiration that's when that's what that's when God speaks. That's when God speaks. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, um, 
I just that's this is why I love you know studying the word, studying yeah. in general. <laughs> yeah, and notice. Okay, let's let's finish out our context here. No, what All we've right, are yes, yes, yes. what we've already done, bro. By going through these four layers, is we have successfully already done the fifth layer, right? Yeah. Because yes, now absolutely. we know we can jump in, right? Remember, I read this before. <laughs> the word knowledge means gnosis. Yep, that's what it means. I mean, that's that's what it is in Greek. It's it is the word the knowledge. Word. Arrogant. Yeah, it puffs you up. That's right. Yes, love is agape, right? It is about the unconditional love, and that edifies. Yep, all these words, all these word studies, they're right. They're about that. But now the words make sense. The words have meaning. The words actually apply to something. The words become real. They're not just. God, keep. Are you keep going with the words? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so in in textual context, um, that's where you would know what what uh, how Paul used the how Paul used the, the 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 word and what he meant by it. So you don't. So you see, context will tell you that you don't. You will not take knowledge uh, in this in on how he use it here as a single word, yeah. right? In a general he way, yeah. In, yeah, in a general way. But you have to take the word knowledge on how it was used by Paul, and he said uh, it's knowledge about eating food offered to the idols. So mm -hmm. it's not knowledge per se. It's about uh, it's about knowledge about about uh, eating food offered to the idols so you will not be going around or say realizing your oh maybe i have been reading so much and yeah. it has made me it has made me proud lord i'm so sorry <laughs> that's that's the point that's not the point here so no. what you do really with about, it right it's what you do yeah, with it yeah it's what you do yes so that's it uh, it's just it's ex it's very exciting to study. It's and easy. This is easy. I'm going to throw one, one just back up here again, the model on the screen for just a few seconds. What yes. we just did, what we just showed you in less than actually 40 minutes. And if you were doing this on your own, it'd probably be quicker because you wouldn't have to talk like we do. We went from historical situation. We set that up. We showed where it plugs in to the greater story. Uh, of the unified story that leads to Jesus. We showed the context of the book itself, of 1 Corinthians. Then we talked about, oh man, now we can see why chapter 8, the local context, is so important. And all of those contexts showed us the meaning and the usage of the words Paul chose in the textual context of 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. And by doing that, by doing this, we came to the interpretation, which is what Paul intended to communicate, and it's this. Knowledge of food, of knowing that food sacrificed to idols is okay to eat, will puff you up as arrogant if you use it in an improper way regarding your brother or someone who does not know that this is okay. So therefore, instead of using the knowledge however you want, veer toward or defer to love. Defer to love in this situation because that will edify your brother. That will edify them. That will cause them to not jump in to sin. That's what 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1b actually means. There's a difference between what the words say and what it means. That's what it means in its proper contexts. 
Ooh. <laughs> I love this episode, bro. I love this episode, yes. bro, because we know that's what it means. Like we we yes. know it. And so you ask the question, right? How do we apply it? So now we got the interpretation, bro. Yes. I like that. So how do we mm. apply it? That's it. So I think we have we have talked about that. So whenever I mean I, I um practical things like dinuguan, you know? Yeah. I, are yeah. you familiar with those? Yeah, yeah, blood. Yeah. So yes. So there are actually a lot of positions about that. Explain so, that to people who don't know. Oh yeah, yeah. So dinuguan is how do how should I it's a food cooked with the the uh with the blood of I think it's from a pig. Yeah. Yeah, I don't I don't know where they come from, but yeah, blood. Or, yeah, but yeah, so that's it. So there are um people who, who believe that um it's wrong to eat dinuguan, but there are also some who believe it's okay. So and it it and it's actually there are debates about this, I think even before, you know, mm -hmm. uh, with, with Christians. And so some actually stumbles because of that and some get, gets uh you know in 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 arguments they get uh, into heated discussion and so they fight so so practically you know yeah if if you are for example if you're in a situation where you are with a friend who actually doesn't who say believe that it's wrong to eat uh dinuguan and he's a new believer maybe he mm. came from a different uh background wherein it's just different from from you and if you believe that it's okay to eat dinuguan and then you're together and then it's your favorite food mm -hmm. <laughs> you want to, to eat it because it's actually delicious too but it's also but at the same time dangerous to help though but so but if you're together there and you really want to eat the dinuguan so you have to the way to apply this what paul is saying is that consider your friend yeah consider consider your friend and the way you do that is don't eat dinuguan if that will make him stumble now if yeah. that will make if that will make him confused, if that will if that will, you know, do something negative to him in his journey in his faith, especially that he's just starting with, with faith. Yep. You know, so I think that's the most loving way of what you do with what you know. Yeah. So there can be a lot of of, uh, of of applications in this. I just gave this specific kind of an example, but point here is that it's what I mean Kyle said it a while ago already. It's about what you do and when you do with what you know. Yes, that's right. What you do with what you know and when you do it. Yes. And so, so I think that the application specifics are endless, right? I mean, yeah. you, you can think of any situation where, so, let's say someone is uncomfortable with something, anything that you know yeah. is okay. Like, you know this is okay. There's no problem with this whatsoever. Yeah. Not only is God fine with it, he'd probably do it with you if he were here, right? But someone's uncomfortable yeah. with it, and you're together with them. What Paul mm. is saying is, hey, your knowledge of that, if you choose to do it, you're just arrogant. Because you yeah. know the person you're with is uncomfortable. And because they're uncomfortable, it will cause them or might cause them to stumble or to sin. And so Paul says mm. the right thing in that situation is to choose to love them and not do that thing because that will build them up. And as you do mm. that, we'll see this later in Corinthians if you read it, you can talk with them, right? In 1 Corinthians 14, you can talk with them 
about how it's okay and move them toward being a stronger, newer, more mature, or not newer, stronger, more mature believer, right? But in these situations, right? Remember, this is 1 Corinthians 8, specific situation, specific thing. In those situations, acting on what you know is sin because you've led your brother who you know struggles to sin and stumble. That's what I'm thinking that I wanted to emphasize also, you know, that being arrogant, not considering your brother, if he stumbles, is actually a sin. Yeah. So we have, so that means, because we know, especially putting putting the, bro, the, the brother context, the, the context that we have talked a while ago, and the result of, you know, what happened with the, the, the church in Corinth in the, in the later years, it had it had, it gotten worse, right? So, yep. The point is the point here is that we really have to we have to take this thing seriously. Yes. We have to we have we be we don't we should not be arrogant, you know. Yeah. But we should be we should be considering our brothers and sisters, uh, because we live in a community and so. So here's in your in the brother con, uh brother context also thinking about church uh, Christian community wherever you I mean in different communities where you are there are I mean the world the world is watching us yeah and if you wanna if and if you want to win them one way of winning them is actually not leading them to stumble but just helping them to understand yep. you know that's right so yeah yes, and that's what so, Paul's teaching. Paul intends to communicate mm-hmm. that our goal is intentionally to help people understand, believer or not, right? Mm-hmm. If the believer's weak and stumbles, yes. our goal isn't to like steamroll them with what we know, it's to help them understand what we know, right? The knowledge mm-hmm. is not the point. I have to keep saying this. Paul wants yes. us to help them understand what we know. It's knowledge. Not to get rid of the knowledge, but to apply the right. knowledge in a proper way for the situation people are in, right? If they're uh, less right. mature, okay, they're less mature. Mm. Let's meet them there. If they're somewhat mature, let's mm. meet them there. If they're more mature, let's meet them there. If they're non-Christian, yeah, this- let's meet them in that place. The intended goal right. is that we will keep growing in our knowledge, but that we will help mm. others understand what we know, not use it as a way mm. to take advantage or use it as a way to get right. what we want that's not what paul's telling us to do he's saying don't do that that's arrogant but if you it's use your knowledge yeah exactly if you use your knowledge in a way that helps others understand and you serve mm-hmm. you're doing what he said you're edifying so you're loving right you're loving yes that's right you're building up someone yeah i, Bro, I love I'm, this I'm just, yeah um i um for, for those who are listening you know who tune into this maybe in some other time this is my encouragement to you maybe you can share um but my, my encouragement is this how about you try looking at the passage and you use this model yeah and then you share your experience what you found out Maybe clarification, maybe solving seemingly um, contradictory passages, and you share it to the comment section, or maybe you can PM us or share it to 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 our page. You can you know direct message our page, but it would be very nice if you comment it in our in, uh, in the in the post. You know, as we um, 
post this uh, this episode so we can share and we can share our joy not just you know things that we learn but share our joy in learning knowing um, more about the bible god what he intends to communicate through specific passages yep. so that's it uh bro do yeah. you have any um uh final words you want to say yeah i i mean biblical interpretation is obviously worth more than three hours of episodes but i think we've <laughs> done i think we've done what we could to lay the foundation here in the mm -hmm. podcast to show people that okay there is a way to interpret scripture and that way actually gets rid of like the majority of these things people call contradictions but they also get rid of the majority of things that we don't understand or we read it and we don't understand because what we often do is we see what the passage says and we never consider what it actually means and this helps us to know what a passage actually means what it says is irrelevant I can read what things say in many other languages. I have no idea what they mean. The key to knowing God and to following Jesus and to growing is to understand what God wants to communicate to you through his word, is to understand what God intends to teach through his word. And the only way to do that is to come to the meaning of scripture. And yes, it takes work. Yes, it takes time. But we've been given a long life to do that and eternity to do that. So we might as well start here. And I, I just wanna I wanna close with mm. reaffirming reaffirming two things. Mm. Number one, I one hundred percent affirm what's called the perspicuity of scripture. And the perspicuity mm. of scripture says this all that you need to know to understand salvation, you can get from a plain reading of the Bible. I agree with that totally. Everything you need to know mm. to be saved, you can get from just opening the Bible, no commentaries whatsoever. Mm. However, even the Bible itself does not think that about growing with Christ. Growing with Christ mm. is work we have to do. So everything you need to know to be saved, you can learn just by opening the text because God illuminates that. But when you become a follower of Christ, that's when Jesus tells you, time to get to work. It's time to get to work. It's time for us to uh, study, to obey, to actually begin to follow, quote unquote, the law. Not because it'll save us, but because it's the way we learn to grow to be more like Christ who followed the law, right? So this is where now we need to get to work. And so for those of you out there, like us, we still struggle with this too. Uh, it's time to get to work. <laughs> it's time to get to work. <laughs> I know you've been yeah. just reading the Bible. I know you've been reading devotionals, but God wants more for you. God wants for you to know what he means to say so that you can use it properly and do what Paul said, love people to edify them. Using the knowledge you learn to help people understand, to help people come to Christ and to help people to grow. It's time to get to work. Yes. So, I mean, you said it all, but this is just the last that I want, the last thing that I want to emphasize. You said you said it in our previous sessions already, discussions, episodes. I want to say, I just want to say this again. Stop reading the Bible. Start studying the Bible. Amen. Amen to that. <laughs> yes. 
Again, so that'll that'll wrap us up. Start. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Stop reading it. So. Start studying it. That'll end us. So we want to end this three-part series just by encouraging you to do that, to stop reading the Bible and to start studying the Bible. Even if you have to slow down and you have to read one chapter a month or four verses a month. Maybe a paragraph. Or maybe a paragraph. Yeah. yeah. Stop yeah. just reading it and start studying it so that you can understand it and apply it. Mm. So it's been a fun, bro. It's been a fun three-part series. I've, I have enjoyed this. It's been, it's been very interesting and... Uh, it's um I know it be very it will be very helpful for for people. So I hope if you are someone who has just tuned into our third episode, um we highly encourage you to go back to the first episode, second and third, because this will somehow help you or say solidify your foundations, basic. Mm. Because this this is podcast. This is not some this is not this is not a, a book reading or something or a lecture or whatever. This is podcast. This is just an introduction. This is supposed to help you start your journey in learning more about biblical interpretation. We are here, mm-hmm. we are here to help you, inspire you, give you a feel of it, an experience of it. But real work will be on your own too. So thank you so much. Um, it's been a very um, meaningful, exciting episode. See you um, for the next episode uh, that we will have. Um, keep thinking, of course. Keep thinking. <laughs>